Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. social butterflies and social elites out there. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and we have a treat for you. With all this popularity of um, this fever, I would say, having to do with the new movie about Downton Abbey, we decided to revisit some of our interviews because, in fact, we interviewed the Countess of Cameron. 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 Um, who is the, the countess, the owner of Highclere, where um, Downton Abbey was filmed and initially for the TV and I believe also for the movie. Um, we're going to be talking to the countess about her book, The Seasons at Highcliff. And it's, it's a great story. Yeah, we're going to be talking to the Countess of Carnarvon, which I think we're going to call you Lady Carnarvon. That's it. Perfect. Good. And uh, you wrote this the, book. We don't have the pronunciation quite right. Okay, do, do, tell me do about Do the that. pronunciation for us exactly it's correctly. Can, well, in England, it's Carnarvon, but in America, it's slightly different. But in England, it's Carnarvon. Okay, Carnarvon it will be then, since I'm married to an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you wrote this book, Seasons at High Clear, and uh, this is the latest of your books, but you've written a whole bunch of books, haven't you? I've thoroughly enjoyed writing the books. There's so much to share, to share from Highclere, so it's a joy to find different ways of doing it. And this one, again, I think is very visual with some beautiful photographs. And again, this is a really interesting format, and the publishers have been very generous just letting me go ahead and trusting me to produce what I think is beautiful. So it's, it's um, well, it, it quite is. a project. Well, it is. Rizzoli is who you're talking about. Um, and and it, the photographs are just heavenly. Yes. Oh, I mean, thank you. It's uh, enough to um, make now, me... Now, here's the real question. How much of Downton Abbey is real? How much of it is people acting out yeah. things that actually happened? Well, you, you better say that the reason you're asking that question is that, that this um, manor house and estate was actually this place where um, Downton Abbey was, was well, yeah. uh, filmed. Well, the, the other thing that's interesting is this program on television was, is a cult, if you'll pardon me saying so. Well, I'm delighted. I, th- I think in some ways Downton Abbey has become a cult. And one reason that it's been so successful is because one of the cast of the characters is an amazing house which holds its own through every series and through the film. And I think Seasons at Highclere, I hope, is a gift, um, a good gift, both from a gift that I wanted to write, to share, 
and I hope is a very good gift for people to buy to share because it's it's an anchor in a very um, broken and fragile world at the moment which we're all trying to work out how to put back together but I wanted to go back in time and just just share some stories and narratives because there has been a home here for at least 1300 years and by using the format of the seasons it just allowed me to share I think you know, a sense of reassurance. If you look backwards, sometimes you give more hope that you can analyze where you are and then look forward. Because <laughs> it's survived, it's been recycled, transformed, rebuilt, but it's still here, which is great. The pe- well, so, the pe- so the people are real, but are the, are the, pe- are the people who portray them are actors and actresses. So there's right? a difference, there's a very big difference between High Clear and the reality of the stories which are shared yeah. within Seasons at Highclere and sure. the fictional book, uh, the, fictional, the, the fictional stories which are deliberately different. You know, so they are the creation of Julian Fellows. They are not the reality, but there are some themes and some stories and some narratives to which we all relate because we've all gone through the challenges faced by Bates and Anna or Lord or Lady Grantham or you know, what's happened to Mrs. Patmore, the cook. And it's from all walks of life. So we all relate to them, but they are works of fiction. And Julian Fellows is a very good friend and knows some of the stories that actually have happened, but then takes it away into a fictional world. So the reality is different. In reality, Highclere is bigger than Downton Abbey. It's not a manor house, it's a castle. It is between 250 and 300 rooms. In the days when Downton Abbey began, um, Highclere had a house steward, a butler, an under-butler, a 14-footman, a whole-room boy, and a steward-room boy. And in Downton Abbey, it's just two or three. But, you know, there's ways of making it um, watchable on television. And you, It's got a cast of 18, and Julian's amazing the way he weaves their lives together and you worry about what's going to happen to them and you want to watch the next series. So there, there is a big difference there. And I also wanted to show the, the longevity of the home because I think many people think it's quite modern, which of course it is, and yet it's not. And, you know, I also wanted to share the gardens, which you see less of in Downton Abbey because they're further away and there's so much going on. And I wanted to share the farm because I think we're all now being asked to think about how we live, what we grow, what we eat, what we cook, and how we can tread lightly on this earth. So, so you are real. You're one, you're, one of, you're, one of, you're one of the real people? Well, I think I'm one of the real people. And there's a very real cast here. So, yes, thank you. Now, let's give our... Listeners, first of all, can you pinpoint exactly where in England you're located? Highclere Castle lies 60 miles west of London. Um, To the north of us is Oxford. To the south of us is Winchester. And we're about 40 miles from Heathrow. So it's a very, fortunately for us, convenient place for visitors to come and um, look around the castle or to do tours. And it's, it's very central and very accessible. So we are most fortunate with a good railway station nearby and, and options with cars and everything else. So we're lucky. We are very lucky to be so close to London. Well, let's give also our listeners a sense of scale. Um, you, you list uh, how many acres 
you did with something in acres, didn't you? There's a thousand acres of parkland around the house, and then we farm another four or five thousand acres of woodland and arable. So there's about 2,000 acres of arable and 3,000 acres of downland and woodland, which is breathing space for nature rather than us. Whereas on the arable, we're trying to grow crops such as wheat or barley or oats, which we eat, all of us in this country, those main crops. They are our staple crops. Yeah, now I... When I started talking to you initially, I said I've read the book and I'm exhausted. And, and I didn't mean from reading the, the book. I meant <laughs> just the idea of, of what it means for you and Jordy to have to uh, maintain this property. And you list all the chores you face every season of the year. Well, I think it's a privilege to live here and it's a responsibility and somehow you need to live every day and enjoy each day and then plan and prepare and in that way it's possible to go forward. So it's a mixture and sometimes it does seem overwhelming and it has been a a hugely challenging time for the last 18 months because we are such a real place. We rely on people actually coming here, like many other stately homes or built more in America. And, of course, like such heritage hospitality um, areas of business, we were closed down for much of the last 18 months. So it's been interesting how you put yourself back together again. Now, how large a staff do you have? Usually too small. <laughs> so, uh, what? Really? Um, <laughs> usually not enough. I mean, I, I don't really know. There's a lot of, there's quite a lot of part-time people, quite a lot of full-time people. It does kind of vary according to the time of year. But, you know, we've always got four chefs and four in the banqueting team who butler for us if we're welcoming some friends. But otherwise they are forming the banqueting team and then the office staff and four gardeners perhaps the number is four actually overall yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then Amazing. 40 or 50 part-time guards and the f- guides and the farm so it's it's a it's a it's a team that expands and contracts but it is a team and that's rather wonderful now can pe- can people actually stay with you they can't stay in the castle we have got two um 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 lodges in which people can rent which is very nice i hope so but they can't actually stay with us here in the castle no i mean are, are, I, I had another i had another i had another question so yeah go ahead let me, let me get this one out of the way we we've been to many of the stately homes of england including mag, truly magnificent places like chatsworth yep but and and all of all of them that we've been to have faced this problem of how to finance the ongoing operation and the ongoing living on the estates. Often they've had to do a deal with the, with the government to pay their taxes with, with some of their possessions because, they, because it's just too expensive to run a place like this. Now, how have you managed? It seems, seems to us from reading the book you must have a magic potion. I I don't think I do. I mean, like the other big estates in this country, such as Blenheim and Burley and um, 
the great castles, where they're deemed of national importance, you're right. We have all done a deal with the tax office, if we were able to, and historic England, and death duties are held over if we open the castle to the public. It's a very fair deal, and it ensures that these houses stay intact and the possessions which were collected and bought for it stay within the setting for which they were designed or bought. So in that way, um, it's a very fair deal, and that's why we are all open, and I'm very conscious of the privilege, as I said, and having said that, the death duties don't evaporate, they're there. So it's like a sword of Damocles <laughs> in order to do that. So you firstly, to my mind, accept that, and which obviously I do, then I try to work um, in tandem, and I've welcomed the tax man, historically, and everyone else down there, because I think that's important. We are in partnership together, and then it's a business. So what I've done is thought in my head with my husband, Jody, what are we going to do? What is the meaning of a stately home? How can we welcome people here? What is going to engage with them? Why will they love it or not? What's going to bring them here? So that is always the question, which is, that's where I started. And that was my thoughts when I was thinking about how we went forward, how we can engage. And then the second thing is it's a business. You have to think it is a business and one in which you need to engage with your heart and your head because you can't wish you didn't have to have visitors here. You need to enjoy it and you need to give that sense of, of joy to the team you're working with. So, it's, so the whole thing is positive and then having set off with the right tone and attitude then you can see what you can do so that's what we do and every day we we are you know we need to bring in revenue to pay the salaries first of all so that's what matters to pay the people who work here well now but, you were yeah. you you weren't raised were you as a country person were you i've lived in london and um I, I went to school in London, but we spent a lot of time in Cornwall, so... Um, uh, we have relatives in Cornwall. We're at St. Agnes every year at Christmas. Yeah. Um, so, but you work with... You seem to know what you're doing about everything. I mean, the, the animals, of which you quite a lot. Um, even um, you... Um, you mushroom hunt, you forage things. Um, you, you seem really at home in the woods or in the, the countryside. I mean, I think that it's a specific personality and, and skill set to be able to do that. How did you do um, it? I think I have always, I've always enjoyed the countryside and I was lucky to be brought up you know I, I think we can all learn so much from walking through the trees and knowing when you look at a tree how to tell where south is or when you're you know walking along a path to look for signs of the moss or the lichen or whatever you want to look for it's knowing the names of things this is what our ancestors knew this is where the roots of our race are or were and this is what can give us some health and some sense of solace and, and nurturing nature. And we should be out walking. The land of desks and grayness is a new concept. 
So I think I like having meetings outside. I think it's better to walk and to talk. <laughs> and I've no intention of going back ever into grey boardrooms. They do not help at Oh, all. yes. I mean, that, that sounded just dreary for somebody who likes the nature as much as you do. Uh, let's get back to this book. I mean, you take us through um, the, the different seasons, um, what what the, the land gives you in each season, things that you are required to do in each season, and um, recipes for each season and occasion. Tell us a little bit more about your book. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I just wanted to share medieval times and how people lived here in the 13th century and 14th century so I decided to look at autumn which is the season we're in now around the idea of a medieval barn which was last refurbished in 1438 but George and I are doing it again now but using the same wood and I wanted to think about you know the, the bounty from the land that we gather in and what some of the best and yummiest things to eat and we eat with our eyes and we need to eat well because that's going to help protect us and give us greater immunity as we fight off colds and flu and everything else so i and i so i started to write down everything which people might have eaten over the ages in autumn that could be grown here so i I, that's what I did. I started writing down, you know, medlars, crab apples, quinces, pears, apples, yeah. you know, and all the different vegetables and the root vegetables and then all the different animals. And I began to work out some of the best seasons for each of them. And then around each season, create the story and the narrative both then and now. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been a fun thing to do. Now, you've de- you delved a great deal into the history of the property. Um, some some things were easy to find out about, and other things were left unanswered for you, right? Some things were much harder to find than others. Yes, <laughs> right, definitely. So, but but it's amazing. It just takes a bit of time, and then sometimes you have a bit of luck, which is great. Uh huh. Yeah. Either you you suddenly read a letter, documents. or you open. Yes, you sometimes open. Um, you know, you open a box and you get lucky or something else happens. It's just amazing. So it's, you, it's just lovely to get lucky, actually, sometimes. And I found some uh, memoirs from the gardener here in 1908, and that's how he, they wrote. There were a 100 gardeners working here and then. And also about the special train which used to take the vegetables around to win the best-in-class show, which I thought was just magic <laughs> now did, did the did the knights actually meet around a round table in winchester i don't know about that you know there are some lovely there are some lovely myths and goodness knows what stories but they i don't mean pretend, they certainly pretend that that's what happened well, they do. I mean, Winchester Cathedral, um, the, the same stonemasons and joiners were um, employed by the bishops of Winchester both here and in New College Oxford and in Winchester Cathedral in the 13th and 14th century. So there are links to there. And obviously the round table was um, a couple of hundred years before that and, you know, written up. I'm not sure whether it was legend or myth and it might have been blown out of a smaller story into a bigger story, out of proportion, but mm-hmm. it's a great story. Mm-hmm. There's still a big, there's still a big statue of King Alfred. Yes, well, no, King Alfred was definitely um, 
there. King Alfred definitely lived there from 849, and he died in 899. But it was King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table who's more legendary figure between Cornwall and Wessex. But it, always, King Alfred always, was there. I always wondered, by the way, why why somebody entitled a song, a popular song, Winchester Cathedral. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> I don't know that one. This was done was recorded by a rock band of some kind. Quite, quite why they picked on Winchester Cathedral, I'm not sure. Well, it's a very beautiful, beautiful building. Yes, it is. Now you have um, you have some interesting um, pieces of your your land. Uh, I was very taken with your comments about your walled garden and. When we were, when I was in um, elementary school, um, we had to choose our favorite book, and uh, and do an illustration of it and a book report on it. And mine was the Secret Garden, and I kept <laughs> thinking back to that. <laughs> I know. Well, the Secret Garden is a really special area actually and um, it, it always delights at every time of year and at the moment as we go into autumn and winter we're beginning to cut back and plan what we're going to do for next spring and summer so it's an exciting time of year to see what we can order and what might come in it is rather wonderful but meanwhile you're getting um, a lot of zucchini <laughs> yes we are <laughs> and actually a lot of cucumbers at the moment so I'm full of tzatziki and things like that uh-huh. Now, um, making. The, uh, I'm going to ask you to, to uh, mm-hmm. talk about some of your, um, your your recipes in a minute, but I wanted to um, to say I was very impressed with um, the. Here's this issue, of course, of climate change, and the climate of England um, has changed very dramatically since I first uh, frequented the country, and. Um, and you mentioned that you actually are actually planting champagne grapes now, and you're friends with the Perrier family. Well, it's you're completely correct. We planted a vineyard in the old walled garden. Having said that, you know, there was huge frost this year, which um, destroyed the grape harvest in great swathes of France and also knocked off probably half the grapes where we are, despite our best efforts to save them. And we did not have enough sun this year. We had hardly any sun through the whole of August, hardly any hours at all. So the grapes never ripened. So yes, we've planted it, but this was not a good year. But equally well, it's, it's it's, I hope, an interesting additional um, source of interest for visitors. It's not our main business in France. It's their main business. So it's definitely yeah, they, sad Burgundy really suffered, I believe, in France this year. That's yeah. Good. And and you've also had your share of um, like the what's the the elm disease and I mean, a lot of the ancient no. trees are gone. But you still have a no, lot of sorry. very old trees. We do, but it's very sad. You know, um, mankind is changing the planet too fast for the partners with which it lives in this world to survive. So it is entirely our fault, and that is very sad. It is. Um, What about some of these recipes? Could you just tell our listeners about some of your favorite um, 
that you you kind of discovered. I was interested that you had not just the traditional English recipes, but you also seem to have uh, influences from other places like the Middle East and so forth. Well, yes. I mean, I... in. If I if I look at what's in autumn, actually, I I did an Instagram video of the celery, grape, and walnut salad because that is just delicious, and it contributes so strongly to all that we do with live with the fantastic dressing, which is live yogurt and Dijon mustard. It works incredibly well together. That's great. So that was that's a delicious salad. I mean, I've chosen some of the British fish and seafood that we can find naturally in the waters around us. Yeah, do, where um, do you get oysters? I mean, you have you love oysters. Where do you oh, get I them? love oysters. Well, I if too. I'm down in if I'm down in Cornwall, <laughs> from Cornwall, of course. So, <laughs> so you know, there's, there's, they're they're successfully grown and farmed there, and they are completely scrummy. And in terms of the Middle East influence, well, I. Um, my one of my I love lamb and quince tangine and it's just yes such, I saw that such a nice mixture and I think quince is not used enough and it's a it's not too sweet it's a really interesting addition to the tangine so that's quite fun and um, then I've introduced I think people to something called tomb which many of you may not have tried <laughs> which Never. I love which is in the winter and that's there because one of my sisters my number six sister and um, her husband there are six of you, you there you is and five of sisters that's yeah amazing it's great so there's a few fun things in winter there's a lovely winter vegetable curry and i think that works really well and again we're all trying not to eat meat every day it's delicious it's you can also use the vegetables that you have but I really like to make sure I do include some um, cauliflower and sweet potato and some things like that. It is a great mixture. And yeah, um, You seem to eat very healthily, actually. <laughs> well, you know, it's good not to eat meat every day, so that's just one, one alternative. And then I think going through last winter, not all of us, we, we, we were all gathering our vaccine later on in 2021. And, and I decided to include a recipe for tomb, which is an amazing garlic sauce, which I absolutely adore. So I'm always making it in the winter. Raw garlic has just such strong antibacterial properties for us all. Yeah. You would not and, go along with the queen on that. <laughs> no, no, she doesn't. I, she's an amazing lady. No garlic lady, in the cast. She yeah. doesn't have good garlic, but but everybody has their different opinions. And I'm not sure I'd have this before, obviously going out to dinner with some smart place. But it is <laughs> incredibly positive. It is it's a it's a it's a really delicious um, um, dip, basically, and it combines some very useful properties which help support our lungs and our breathing and respiratory system sometimes is the worst time of year. And I think you know, if we eat well, it can help our immune system fight off colds and flus. So that's what I was trying to say as well. Eat with the seasons. Um, there are some things which are fun and delicious, like pancakes, you know, and things yeah, like that, or banana bread. But as well as that, mix in with some of the other diverse foods which can help support ourselves. My, my mother would, have, would swear on the Holy Bible that she never consumed garlic. <laughs> what, what, she, what she doesn't realize is what we put in the things that, she, that we fed her when she was visiting with us. 
<laughs> yes, I'm sure. The thing is, the the thing that is, if you in in within a garlic clove, there's a central sort of thin green, pale green strand. Right. And if you open the garlic and take that pale green out, that is what gives the garlic the longevity in terms of a. Of, of, of the scent of your breath. So if you remove that, it's a much better way to eat it. And then you crush what is remaining. Then it's, it's better for you, but doesn't, doesn't mean that everybody else facing you <laughs> disappears <laughs> 10 feet from you. So that's one tip. And not everybody likes, I completely agree with that. And you know, before I was going out to a dinner, I would not have raw garlic. But it is something which is very supportive. It's supportive of your immune system and it's supportive of your lungs. And all of us have been focused on how we can best support our lungs. Exactly. Um, I have a, another question. Um, Peter and I were talking about this. You have a um, recipe in here for medlar jelly. Yeah. Now, I, I, I'm not sure I understand the medlar tree or the medlar fruit. In Italy, they have this um, a funny little round fruit that has like brown spots on it. And I always thought they were spoiled until um, I saw a marzipan um, that replicated the, the these things which they called nosporus, uh and with the brown spots on it. And I looked it up at my Italian dictionary and it said fruit of the medlar tree. Now, what is the fruit of the medlar tree? And is it the same thing I've seen in Italy? It probably is. I mean, they're very pretty trees, and they've got very lovely blossom and great autumn color and fruits, which are edible. You don't, it's a bit tart if you eat it raw, but it's really rather delicious in jellies and, and puddings. And you just need to eat it, you know, when you, you need to wait until it is brown. <laughs> oh, so that's when, So you need to wait till they until there's no danger of, you know, you need to let it develop well into the autumn and pick in dry conditions. So they are, I think, completely delicious. And they're different, that's all. I mean, I think we, our ancestors, at different um, fruits and desserts and perhaps more diverse foods than we did. And I think it's fun to plant things which... Um, which you can't necessarily buy in a supermarket. Exactly. Are really important too. And it's, it's, they are delicious. They're not an acquired taste. They're simply delicious. But you need to cook them, as I suggest, and make a jelly, and then they'll stay for ages. It's fantastic in stews or, you know, you could add it to cottage pie or whatever else you're making or cooking. It's, 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 it's slightly sweet and it has a slight overtaste of stewed apples. It's delicious. They're absolutely delicious. Well, I think the most useful recipe in your book is baked three cheese souffle because how many <laughs> times have we had them collapse just as we're about to serve them? Oh, I know. Well, I completely agree. And because our kitchen is so far from from where we eat, from the dining room, it's a really good recipe, actually. So it's quite fun. <laughs> So that's why I did the funny photograph of, of, of Paul the chef handing the souffle to Louis, our butler, and telling him to yeah, run. He's very elegant, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> he is very elegant, is he? And, and Paul is great as well. But it's just encouraging them to run. And it's, you know, who doesn't love cheese? We all love cheese, don't we? 
Particularly, you want something like this in, in the months like January and February, something which just it has kind of a lot of feel-good factor. But, you know, you could equally well serve it as a main course with a big green salad with a nice dressing. Right. And you don't, <coughs> excuse me, you don't really need anything else. Well, it's, it's a wonderful book, and um, listeners, the, the photographs are just going to uh, make you so envious of, <laughs> of where uh, the, yeah, the, these people live. I mean, it's just beautiful, gorgeous. Oh, uh, again, the you. book is um, The Seasons at High Clear, and it's uh, from Rizzoli, and they did a fine job of publishing it. Thank you. And for you Downton Abbey fans who are out there around the world, there, there, there is a real Countess of Carnarvon, because she's here on the program. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you for taking time to talk to us. And um, You are very kind. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All righty. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you very much. All righty. Next up, we're going to uh, pursue an interview with Jane Churchill and Emily Astor, a brilliant and uh, certainly well-known names. And they are the authors of a book called, in the U.S., Entertaining in Style, about their uh, family estate uh, either Cliveden, if, if you have a certain accent, or Cliveden, if you have a different kind of accent. At any rate, it's, it's a wonderful uh, country house with a long tradition and uh, mm, a renowned party place. Um, Peter and I have been there, not as guests of, of the uh, Churchills or Afters, but once it was a hotel with a, a chef in the kitchen that we knew. At any rate, let's listen to Jane and Emily talk about the grand days. Oh, we're talk, we're having a fun time here. We're talking uh, to the, um, the authors of a book called Entertaining in Style. Um, no, Entertaining it's a, Lives, it's called. Oh, it, I, my copy of the book says Entertaining in Style. Oh, well, it's only may have changed it, yes, because in England... Oh, okay. It's, so we're changing it. Okay, that probably is the American version. So it's going to be entertaining style. Okay. No. Tell me what it's going to be. Entertaining life. Well, the the English version is called on the front cover. It says entertaining lives. But the lives. American version is called entertaining in style. Okay. Yeah, sorry, okay. I I hadn't I haven't got a copy of that here. So yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, anyhow, listeners, uh, we are talking uh, to the descendants of uh, Nancy Astor and Nancy Lancaster, and um, uh, it's about this stunning property and stunning lives of these stylish people uh, in the U.K. and America. Uh, We'll get into that later. Um, We're going to actually have uh, Emily... Uh, tell us, or Jane, whoever wants to do it, if you can explain um, where Cliveden is, actually. 
Well, Emily will explain because she was brought up there. <laughs> yes. Right. So you were a teenager, I understand, huh, Emily? Yes, yes. Cliveden is in Buckinghamshire, um, and which is just outside London. Um, it was built in 1666. It then burnt down in 1795, and the second house was built in 1824, which was again destroyed by fire in 1849 and finally um, it was built which is the current house now in 1851 the architect was a well known man called Charles Barry and he built it for the second Duke of Sutherland Uh, and you know it's absolutely luscious Um, Peter and I managed to stay there uh, once it was at that hotel because we knew the um, executive chef at the time and it the house the gardens everything is totally exquisite and this book that um, Jane and Emily wrote it's actually beautiful and gorgeous in its own right too uh, talk, telling you about um, the characters uh, the table settings recipes flower arrangements the decorated and the wonderful memorable parties that were held there um, who which of you would like to, to do I asked Emily before we started recording telling her that I'm not very good at family trees but I think our listeners would like to know the relationships between um, the different members of the family and their connections to both Mirador, uh, which is in Virginia in the U.S., and Cliveden. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that one of you? And if you could um, announce who you are for a first couple of questions so that people recognize your voice. Jane or Emily, who would take that question? Should I start? I'm Jane Churchill, and I live in England, and I've run Jane Churchill Interiors for many years in the Pimlico Road. And my relationship is that there were um, nine Langham children who all lived at um, Mirador in Virginia. My great-grandmother was the eldest, um, Lizzie, and Nancy Astor was the youngest. And because my great-grandmother died very young, when my great-grandmother was only six, she actually brought up my grandmother, which is why Nancy Astor treated all of us exactly the same as her grandchildren. And Nancy Lancaster was my grandmother's sister, who was a bit older um, than her, so she's my great-aunt. Now, Nancy Astor was was really quite famous for, for something that you perhaps can explain a little bit more to us. So I'm Emily Astor, and Nancy Astor was my grandmother. And she was famous because she was elected as the first woman in the British Parliament on November the 28th, 1919. And she served uh, for over 25 years um, as a member of Parliament uh, for Plymouth Sutton, and during her time in Parliament, she felt a special responsibility to women and children. And I think she understood their needs and ambitions in a way that men couldn't. Um, she often expressed that women were more suited to public life, as women had moral courage and were not so easily flattered. So 
um, that person. That was quite an accomplishment. I mean, and as a character, she was really amazing too, right? Yes, she was a huge character, as were all the siblings. You know, all the Langhorns were incredible characters, especially the women, I think, very strong. Uh, very strong and very amusing. They're incredibly funny. Oh, yeah, I was going to say their wit is incredible. Yes, and then it, when it went down, because you know, Nancy Lancaster and Nancy, and then my grandmother, Alice Wynne, who were sisters, I mean, they were very entertaining. And the other thing is, they all had shed loads of energy. <laughs> well, they, to do all the stuff that they did with their entertaining at both properties, they had to have been, right? Exactly. Well, together with... Yeah. Both of them died when she, hard. Nancy Astor, Emily. 80, how old was Aunt Nancy Astor when she died? 83? 83, 84, yeah. Yes, but my grandmother and Nancy Lancaster were 97 and still was firing on all... <laughs> by the way. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Oh, 97. There was upended her garden until she was well over 90. That's no, probably no. why, the gardening. <laughs> now, there's another parliamentary connection in the family as well. There's a, another name that people perhaps would, would recognize even more than Astor. So what, oh, what, Winston Churchill? Churchill, you mean? Yes, exactly. Yes, but that was because I married a Churchill, so that's <laughs> not, well, no, relate, no blood relation. Oh, okay, right. all right. Well, I, I didn't know, I just thought he, he was... No, not flinging him in, nothing to do with me. <laughs> nothing to do with you, okay. You didn't no. have anything to do with it. Hmm. Well, no, no um, you, Jane, um, yes. are, uh, a, I'd say, really outstanding and a world-renowned interior decorator designer. Um, That's very kind. And, and, you know, <laughs> I said, until I read this, I didn't realize that interior design talent was genetic, but apparently it is. Tell us about that. Only lucky it was genetic, because I don't know what else I would have done. I'd been down the job centre, I think. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, now, the um, one of the things they you talk about, uh, and one of the things people note about your family history and the book, is that there's this fusion of entertaining styles between the American South and the British country house traditions. And um, it, it, that I found rather fascinating. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think when they came to England, um, first of all, Nancy, both Nancy Astor and Nancy Lancaster um, did, redid their houses and made them infinitely more comfortable. I mean, Nancy Lancaster's bathrooms were really like everybody else's drawing rooms, you know. I mean, uh -huh. they were, you know, and Melissa, my sister and I used to sleep on the top floor at Hazley. And normally sort of attic bedrooms, uh, you know, there's money's run out by then or that doesn't. And nobody cares about them anyway. But they were just as nice and pretty and well thought out and looked after as the rooms downstairs. And But the thing about both of them is their houses that they were never pretentious they were always lived in there was always dogs children um you know it was they were lived in they weren't showpieces at all because family meant everything to them which i'm sure emily will agree with we were all flung together um from a very young age yeah i think that's an outstanding point to make and i thought it was one of the most spectacular 
points of the stories you tell about this, uh, the whole history, family history, is there, there is this lack of stuffiness, there's a lack of um, stiffness and formality, and, uh, and, and you have a lot of <laughs> uh, interesting minor characters to add color, such as uh, <clears throat> James Butler. <laughs> I guess it set him back on his heels quite a, a bit to have some of the southern influence in in his world. Oh yes, I mean, and they America meant everything to them. And my grandmother always said she was Virginian. And when I married Charles Churchill, because he had Vanderbilt blood, she said, "How can you marry a Yankee?" I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had some um, interesting marriages, Jane. Me? You know, I've only been married once. Not really. <laughs> oh, I thought you had two. No. No, nobody else asked me. Mm. <laughs> did, did Emily have more than one? Uh, yeah. No, one of your ancestors had more than one. Mm. Well, a lot of our ancestors had probably uh, more definitely. than one. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, mm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, all these little hidden gems in this book... I, Emily, you're a photographer. Did you do any of the photographs? I'm trying to remember. Um, no, no, not in this book, because there was a wonderful photographer who specializes in food. So Andrew, Andrew Montgomery? Yes, yeah, he's brilliant. Andrew Montgomery, absolutely mm. brilliant. So uh, for me, I've actually specialized more, not necessarily in this book, but in older photographs and spent a lot of time in, with many albums from Clifton with all the old photographs. Oh, yes. Which would be um, and, and they're just amazing. Um, the the parties. Everybody knows about the parties, at uh, especially at um, uh, at the Clifton. Um, discuss, talk a little bit about them. They were relaxed, you said, in some ways, and and you have very important guests. Yes, I think so. And then what Jane says is absolutely right, is that they mixed and matched everybody. And family, as she said, was a big, you know, very big part of it all. So along with the family, they were the, often judged. George Bernard Shaw was there. Queen Marie of Romania was there. T.E. Lawrence. Winston and Mrs. Churchill, of course. Um, Joe Kennedy, who was the ambassador at the time, was there. Yeah, exactly. He was the who, yeah. right? He wasn't too popular over there, was he? No, he wasn't. No, exactly. No, no. Deservedly so. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And then, but Nancy Yaster sort of mentored Kit Kennedy because she then married Billy Hartington. So she was often there as well, and Charlie Chaplin, and all. Oh, yeah, the Charlie Chaplin, that was interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, you have a photograph of here. Right. Mm, mm. And always mixed in from family because often I think there were family from Virginia visiting, so they were always there and her own children and their friends. And you know. Yeah, I, mean, I like the stories about so, uh, who was it, the, the king who called up, I can't remember which one it was now, and it said that he was going to come over and he arrived with his whole entourage and then decided to just stay. I mean, this is the kind of atmosphere that comes across. I think so. But fortunately, they had amazing, an amazing butler, I think, who uh, and chef, obviously. So they, you know, everything just panned out very easily, and no fuss, and food was produced for everybody, and all the guests were made to feel very welcome. 
Now, he at always one point wanted to, to uh, resign. Fun. And it was always fun. I think my first memory is of going to Clifton, because I think we spent Christmas there, and I don't think I could have been more than four or five. I honestly think it's my earliest memory. So it's always meant a lot to me. Uh-huh. And, but he, he found it hard to adjust at some point and wanted to resign, right? Mm. Um, did did what, you write who, that in your book? Who wanted to resign? He wanted to quit and move on, the, the butler. Oh, I see. Oh, yes, but that was when he said to Aunt Nancy, um, he was leaving, Aunt Nancy, well, tell me where you're going, because I'm coming with you. <laughs> <laughs> see, this is that wit again, how funny. <laughs> yes, uh, southern wit came through, and needless to say, he didn't resign. Exactly. Right. Mm. It, was, it was kind of a family thing anyway, which... Which somebody, some, somebody's husband, a relative named Churchill, apparently was was very fond of the bon mot. The one I can remember is he was sitting next to someone and being rather vociferous, and his, his seatmate said, "Mr. Churchill, you are drunk," and he replied, "Ah, yes, madam, but tomorrow I will be sober." <laughs> but you will still be. Mm. He didn't. He, he didn't have to say the rest of it. No, <laughs> I thought he said, "But you will still be ugly." <laughs> no. That's all. That, that's another one. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, that's part of the delight in this whole thing, and part of the raison d'etre to this book is the discovery of the Mirador um, recipes. Tell us that story. Well, that when my grandmother died, and oh, my grandmother and Nancy Astor never threw, it, threw anything away. Emily went to the archive um, at Reading University and found all the thank you letters that my sister, brother, and I had written to Aunt Nancy from when we were very, you know, she always gave us a Christmas present and we always went for lunch before we went back to school, and she kept everything. Anyway, so when my grandmother died, we found the bound copy, because I think there's three or four of them, and it says the Mirador cookbook is bound in red leather with WA on the cover Waldorf Astor and so I just thought it was so awful not to do something with it you know and this is what we did and I didn't want to do just a you know a normal cookbook we, it, it, the whole point was to bring the two of them to life lots have been written about them but this sort of brings them to life as sort of human beings from a family point of view uh -huh, it does it mm. does I mean you feel like you've gotten to know them in the process Exactly. Um, now, I mean, there are gorgeous photographs of the table settings, and I mean, how you couldn't have the most marvelous parties in the whole entire world with this kind of interior and the table settings and the flowers and the, <laughs> I mean, the silver, the china, just gorgeous. Uh, but. The food was important, too, but tell us a little bit about that, because there is a fusion between um, the American South, Southern cooking and the British-French-influenced style of the times. Uh, what, what are some of the quintessential um, American South, South recipes in this book? Well, obviously the, the 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 grits and that sort of thing, and um, the, and chicken and the gumbo ham, <laughs> was always um, sliced by uh, on Nancy very very thinly, and I think you 
sent over from um, from America too when they when they came over. Um, <laughs> and they're just a, it's. I think that they they sort of in, have introduced many more salads and that kind of thing into what they ate. I mean, the food was always really good, but it was never sort of heavy. And uh, don't you don't you think, Emily? It was never sort of. Um, it was much more original, I think, don't you? Yes, and I think also, obviously, in the south where corn grows everywhere, yeah. they have grown up with a lot of recipes which involve corn, and in Britain we hadn't, so they um, they definitely brought that up. So we had those corn fritters and... and the corn pudding, I mean, my grandmother always had that very often, at me, at, you know, and nobody mm-hmm. else... Hello? Yeah, and... Um, and and then obviously the eggs, the delicious eggs. They've got lots of recipes for that. But um, okra, and then the I game pie was, was obviously from when they came yeah, over. Yeah, the game pie. I mean, I think and I've had that every time I've been in England. That's <laughs> much more, you know, in English country houses from what you've hunted or shot. There was one recipe that we didn't put in, which said add squirrel for for, for flavour. <laughs> that was called Brunswick stew, I think. Yeah, and then, but obviously the corned beef hash is American as well. Yes. Yeah. No, the um, Virginia the ham with pickled peaches is American. No, the Brunswick mm-hmm. stew is interesting. We 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 had a guest who, for some for some reason, we focused on that particular recipe. But she she called someone that she knew and said, "How many squirrels do I put in Brunswick stew?" <laughs> oh, well, there you are. Exactly. Oh, how brilliant! Yeah. The answer came back. I think something like at least six. Oh really? Oh my God! Yeah. Horrendous. You know, one of the devices you use in this book that I find is very effective is that you have special quotations, like from Nancy Astor. And it, <laughs> I'm, I'm reading one here. It says, oh, Mrs. Langhorn, a friend said to my mother, your husband has such lovely eyes. And Nancy Astor replied, don't be fooled by that. He looks just the same way at a batter cake. <laughs> and, and then this exchange between Nancy Astor and Winston Churchill. Nancy, Winston, if I were your wife, I'd put poison in your tea. Winston, Nancy, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> well, you see, all these things that have made it come to life and made the book more human. I think that that is what people have really loved. Right. The, what what kind of uh, reactions have you got? I mean, unbelievable. I also mean, I, every, you feel longing and nostalgia um, re- writing the book. Um, well. No, I felt very sort of. I said, first of all, I did it. You know, we I did it in lockdown, which was just wonderful. Um, you know, because it was such a great thing to do. Yeah. I was sixteen when Nancy Astor died, so I knew her very. You know, I knew her pretty well, and much, much older, obviously, when Nancy Lancaster died. So, you know, and there was such a strong presence, both of them, in one's life that it was lovely to be sort of living with them for a bit. <laughs> uh huh. Yes. yes, you feel very reconnected. 
actually reconnected and all the family have been very sort of pro it and um you know loved loved it as well and been amused by it and all ages grand you know the grand the much younger generation of, as well and that's very very nice for us to know now, you you've been back to the properties what kinds of reactions did you have to revisiting when when you it wasn't your home anymore um i think for me personally as i was born at clifton i find it much easier now that it's a hotel because they keep it you know, all the grounds are done very nicely and, you know, inside is now beautifully decorated and well kept up. Uh, after we left, it was Stanford University's campus, which was absolutely fine and I think wonderful for all the students, but it definitely, I found it a little daunting to go back and more to one bedroom. I think, as well. Yeah, and, you know, suddenly in your room you expected as a child to see your teddy on the bed and there were four beds <laughs> in your bedroom. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and and, and uh, when you went back to Virginia, what, at Mirador, were you able to get in? This is the, yes, the I went. Absolutely amazing how many members of our family have been to see it. And when I had a book launch at um, in Palm Beach the other day, there was a lady there because my brother was um, chairman of Sotheby's. And when he worked in New York um, it, the, before he was chairman here, um, there was a lady who was getting married and going to live in Virginia. And, and through him, she actually had lived in the house. And she came to my book launch in, in, um, in Palm Beach. And there were several people there who knew the relations, who'd been there. And I think it's so nice that so many of our generation have wanted to go because we were brought up listening to every other word was at Mirador, this happened or that happened and therefore uh-huh. you wanted to see it yes mm. and well, it's so I've... pretty as well i mean it's just as you know it's such a beautiful area and there's a really sweet church just at, across the road from the end of the drive at mirador greenwood and there's plaques around all the church of all the family members and i think jane your nancy your grandmother's maybe there is she there you, right, you said that you sent me a, co- uh, a picture yes. of it which cleaning i told emily to take her her plastic gloves next time because emily's on the board of the school there too <laughs> <laughs> i drive by quite often and i wanted to clean it up yeah mm. yeah so i i often go in and it's just it's so lovely and the bell and the church was given by um uh nancy astor's father who worked on the chesapeake and ohio railroads and it was like a, a railway bell on the church so that's there and every family member is in there and there's plaques around the wall and in the graveyard and still to this day you know many many members of the family are buried there it's a, it's yes. just a really lovely little church mm. <laughs> now i, I want to ask you uh, you have suffered different lives now um Briefly, Jane, what what is your life like now? I mean, are you into uh, entertaining? You're into decorating well, interior. Yeah, we haven't designs. been able to have any 
entertain anybody lately. I've always had entertained. I've always had, I mean, not on that scale, but small, you know, people for dinner and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I work full time. I have my, I own my own interior design business. So, you know, which is lovely because you're involved with all different nationalities and worlds. And then Emily and I going to um, America in April. We've got a book, uh, we're doing a book launch in Charleston. I've never been there, so that's very exciting. Oh, that's very nice. In New York and Southampton. So, you know, it's been just great fun um, to see people so interested in this and so enjoying it as well. Getting the pleasure yeah. that as well, for, like we have. Now, when, 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 you're, when you're there in that vicinity, you must be sure to go near Monticello, which was... Top I've been to Monticello. Oh, yeah. Did you go to James Madison's house? No, I don't think I did, but I did go to Monticello. I can't, I can't, I can't remember the name of it. But, and somebody had oh, um, horrible things to it and painted it pink. Uh, uh, awful. <laughs> and, then, and then a member of the DuPont family, which somehow had inherited this mansion, the, 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 the person involved gave enough money to totally restore the house the way that it had been back in the yeah, 18th century. quite lovely now, yeah. And really? That, oh, good. That, pro that, that was in the process of happening, if you remember, sweetheart, when we went there. Right. And they, they were shopping for furniture of the period and all that kind of stuff. To, to, but it was interesting. Somebody just gave, gave me enough money to make sure that all the nasty things that had been done to the building over the years would be gone away. Oh, is that Montpelier? Yes, that's yes, it. Yes, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, no, uh, you, Emily, what's your life now? Um, like? My life is I go between London and Scotland quite a lot. So in London recently, I mean, I, I have been working quite a lot in the after archives just in the last sort of five years oh, really? so I've been doing that quite a bit looking through all the documents and old photographs and I've always done picture research from way back and then the other half of my life is in Scotland where I have a sheep farm <laughs> so <laughs> completely different <laughs> yeah I should think do you make yeah. cheese <laughs> no yeah um, well uh, I think that it's what sharing is wonderful. Uh, I just read a, a, a sort of a part of an autobiography or biography of the Vanderbilt, uh, which ex talks about a, a similar period in in the Gilded Age of New York, and um, and the characters do not come off nearly as warm in, in that book as as your relatives do in this book. Uh, listeners, again, it's it's if you're buying this book in the UK, it's called Entertaining Lives. If you're buying the book in the US, and I don't know where else, it's called Entertaining in Style. And the authors are, that we've been talking uh, with is Jane Churchill and Emily Astor, who are de uh, descendants in this family and who experienced these houses um, and, and still experiences the memories of, of the wonderful lifestyle they had. Well, thank you both for taking the time to talk to us. And um, remember also, listeners, that the recipes are really lovely. <laughs> 
Okay, well, that's thank so nice you of you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank yes, you. thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Bye. I enjoyed it. Mm. Bye. Oh, good. <laughs> Today, all you party people out there, uh, we hope you enjoyed this. And I think when you see the, the movie, uh, read about Cliveden. You'll, you'll get a sense of what goes on behind the scenes. A lot of partying, a lot of preparation, and a lot of fun. Um, that's it, as I said, for this week. See you again next week. And until then, bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.